This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. In Delusions of Gender, cogitative psychologist Cordelia Fine writes, My husband would probably like you to know that for the sake of my research, he had to put up with an awful lot of contemptuous snorting. For several weeks, our normally quite hour of reading in bed before the lights out became much more like dinner time in the pigsty as I worked my way through popular books about gender difference. As a result of my research, I have come up with four basic pieces of advice for anyone considering incorporating neuroscientific findings into a popular book or article about gender. 1. Unless you have a time machine and have visited a future in which neuroscientists can make reverse inferences without the nagging anxieties that keep the more thoughtful of them awake at night, do not suggest that parents or teachers treat boys or girls differently because of the differences observed in their brains. 2. Exercise extreme caution when making the perilous leap from brain structure to psychological function. And three, don't make stuff up. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, the group editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury Publishing, Alexandra Pringle, talks me through her must-read coming-of-age novels for young women and girls. And are men from Mars and women really from Venus? Not so, argues cognitive psychologist Cordelia Fine, whose hard-hitting new book, Delusions of Gender, rips apart the myth that our brains are somehow hardwired, demonstrating how it is simply neurosexism at work. This is a show about innocence and experience, myths and bias, bohemian childhoods and blunt realities. But first, coming-of-age novels that can influence a lifetime. A few months ago, the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction asked book lovers on Twitter to nominate the most life-changing books written by women. And of course, no surprises as to who made the shortlist. Heavyweights such as Margaret Atwood, Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte and Donna Tartt. I was just surprised that The Colour Purple by Alice Walker and Middlemarch by George Eliot didn't make the top ten. But sure, there is no accounting for taste. Well, with that in mind, I asked one of the most influential ladies working in British publishing today, Alexandra Pringle, to select her top novels for girls of a certain age. Alexandra Pringle is the group editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury Publishing in London and has spent over 40 years discovering and promoting great writing talent from around the world. Her list of authors is impressive and includes heavyweight writers such as Donna Tart, Barbara Trepido, Anne Paschett, Colin McCann, Elizabeth Gilbert and Esther Freud. Interestingly, Alexandra is also patron of Index on Censorship and is the organiser of literary events at the Chelsea Arts Club. Yes, she's a very busy lady. 
Well, over the weekend, I got the opportunity to chat with Alexandra about the books Sun and Spar. Let's take a listen. Well, I've chosen a number of books that go, I would say, from the 1920s up to now. And I would say that what I call the Bohemian Girls coming-of-age stories began in the 20s, really with The Constant Nymph by Margaret Kennedy. So Margaret Kennedy published The Constant Nymph and it became a massive sensational bestseller. It's now pretty much forgotten. But it was actually the first Lolita story, but it was a Lolita story written by a woman about a 14-year-old girl who falls passionately in love with a much, much older man. And it was set in a world, in a very bohemian world that was based on the painter Augustus John and his sort of circus of mistresses and wives and children. And it captured the imagination of that generation and it captured mine many generations later. In fact, I came to the book through my mother who had loved it in her girlhood. So that begins in the 1920s and Edith Wharton also wrote a really forgotten book called The Children. That was published, I think, in about 1928. And Again, it's a kind of constant nymph Lolita story about a family of stepchildren on a cruise and this young teenage girl falls in love with a bachelor in his 40s. So this was quite unprecedented stuff. It was very outre at the time. I I think the girl was 15. So in the constant nymph, she's 14. In the children, she's 15. And nowadays, of course, we would throw up our hands in horror. But these stories are done with such delicacy and sensitivity. And they speak so well of what it's like to be that age. And I think Edith wrote that book just after she became the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. So it was after she'd produced Age of Innocence and House of Mirth. I always associate Edith Wharton with books about middle class society and more of the mature reader and very satirical. Yes, and Edith Wharton actually wrote a lot of very different books, but most of them have disappeared from view. And what we know are her highest achievements, her absolutely first-class novels. And you can't say that The Children is amongst those, but I have a great affection for what you would call second-class Edith Wharton, rather rather as I do for the second-class Thomas Hardy's. And this one, I think, is particularly beguiling because it's set in the 20s, so it's later than those very famous ones, which are turn-of-the-century novels about manners and New York society. And it is about a world where families have been split apart and divorces have happened and we have really what we now know as the patchwork family, children stuck together by stepfathers and stepmothers or who are very often going off and getting on with their lives and neglecting their children shamefully. And Alexandra, you picked another very interesting American novelist, Elaine Dundee. Can you tell me about her? Very intriguing life. And she hung around with a lot of big names, Norman Mailer, Tennessee Williams. She was a close friend of Laurence Olivier. Yes, Elaine Dundee, who died actually rather recently, was, I think, an absolutely wonderful writer and had a very interesting and eccentric life. And her novel, The Dada Avocado, which is one of my very favourites, it was published in the 1950s, actually ends with the meeting of the man who in her real life became her husband, who was the critic Kenneth Tynan. So she was in this bohemian world. But what is so wonderful about The Dada Avocado is it's set in Paris in the 1950s about a young American actress called 
Sally, who is given some money by her uncle, and she takes off, and she's very like Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it's written by a woman, and so it's very much from the woman's point of view. And this wonderful young woman is let loose in Paris of the 50s, and there are fantastic scenes where she parties all night, and she's wandering around Paris wearing a ball gown, and it's completely joyous and makes you want to just kick up your heels and run away from ordinary life. And Dodie Smith, famous for 101 Dalmatians. You've chosen one of her books, I Captured the Castle. I have. I Captured the Castle, and that's set in the 1930s and really is in a perfect line with The Constant Nymph and the Children because, again, it's about a slightly older girl. She's 17, Cassandra, and she lives in a deeply eccentric family in a crumbling ramshackle castle where everything happens. And in this situation, uh, some wealthy neighbours arrive and they're Americans. So there's a crossover here between America and the UK, which I think is very interesting. And it's all about, you know, the first experience of falling in love. And it is captures the heart of all young women. And I was fascinated to see today that the Bailey's Prize, who did their poll on which are the top, top books written by women over forever, that is one. First one is To Kill a Mockingbird. Then it's Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. And then, I don't know, something like eight or nine. Here comes I Capture the Castle, a novel that survived since the 1930s. That's probably the novel that is the most famous now. People simply, they just continue to adore it. And do you think that was Jodie Smith's best book? I do, yes. And I think it's actually her most enduring book. But of course, who would ever be without 101 Dalmatians? Muriel Spark is an intriguing writer and she writes very difficult characters. Can you tell me about her life? Because she started writing quite late. I think she published her first book at 39, but she did a lot. She published plays, dramas, published all sorts of stuff. She did, and she published some very dark novels towards the end of her life, Memento Mori in particular. But I think that the novels that she will always be most loved for are obviously The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. But for me, Girls of Slender Means is a top favourite. And this is about, these are older girls by this time. They're grown up and they're working. And it describes perfectly what it's like going out into the world, leaving school, leaving university, and having your first job. And actually, we published a wonderful memoir by Joanna Rakoff called my Salinger year, which is about the same situation of a young woman. So in this novel, you have a selection of quite random girls who are working as clerks and secretaries and so on during the war. And they're living in this shabby, genteel hotel off Kensington High Street. And their lives are far from genteel, it has to be said. So they share a chaparelli evening gown. Evening gowns come into these novels quite a lot. And they climb out of their attic window to get up to no good at night time. And again, I think it's everyone's fantasy about leading a life that is not a regular life. And that, of course, is what Muriel Sparks' life was like. She was gay. She lived with her partner in Italy for many years. She lived a life exactly as she wanted to and, and wrote these extraordinary novels. And she was a very perceptive writer, a very intelligent writer, yeah. and wrote very cutting scenarios. She wasn't scared to cut to the chase on some of the very cruel aspects of life and social conventions and the uncomfortable parts of humanity in those dark areas. That's possibly her greatest achievement as a writer. I think so. And her wit, which is part of it, her sharp wit. And wit is something that goes through most of these novels, an essential component for me in these sorts of books. Can I ask you about Esther Freud? You have worked with Esther. Yes, actually, from the beginning, there was a little period 
period in between when we were separate and we came back together. But when I worked at Hamish Hamilton in the 1990s, I was sent a manuscript of a novel called Hideous Kinky. And I will never forget sitting down and reading it one evening and falling completely in love with it. And this actually is different in some ways from the others in that the narrator is a six-year-old child and it's her mother who's the bohemian woman on the loose. And Esther perfectly captures the experience of being taken by a hippie mother to Morocco in the 1960s and I think actually the early 70s and being in a situation full of colour and excitement but also fear and you as the reader fear for her. I don't think there's anything that's quite got what Hideous Kinky has and of course it was made into a film starring Kate Winslet but that was seen much more from the point of view of the mother rather than the little girl. Do you think it's been difficult for Esther as a writer coming from such a famous background, daughter of Lucian Freud, granddaughter of Sigmund Freud, these towering figures? Do you think that it's in some way coloured readers' perceptions of her writing or her gift for writing? Do you know, I don't really think so because she has her own true still voice. I remember Francis Wyndham saying to me years ago when he read Hideous Kinky, the thing about Esther Freud is she's a real artist and she is an artist. She writes very, very well about painters and painting. And in fact, her new novel, which is called Mr. Mac and Me, is about a little boy and his friendship with the great architect Charles Rennie Mackintosh. And the descriptions as this little boy observes the older artist painting watercolors are completely extraordinary. So I think Esther has absolutely found her way in the world and found her own voice and has not been cowed by these huge men in her background. Now, Alexandra, there was one of the books on the list that I didn't know, Brothers of the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trapido. Yes. Can you tell me about that book? Because that wasn't something that was on my radar when I was growing up. It was actually published relatively recently. By that, I mean something like 20 years ago. I actually can't remember. And it immediately became a classic. And it's a book that inspired many women to write novels. And it's a book that is passed from hand to hand and now generation to generation. And the extraordinary thing is it just keeps selling. I mean, we have it on our backlist and every single week it sells and it sells and it sells. And that is a novel about an 18-year-old girl who is propelled into a family run by, well, the head of the family is Professor Jacob Goldman in a rambling home. And it's a very eccentric and bohemian family and his wife is enchanting and very sharp tongued and there are lots of brothers and sisters and of course young Catherine 18 year old Catherine falls in love with one of two brothers and it's always the thing of do you fall in love with the right brother or the wrong brother and what people say about it is that it really redefines the coming of age novel so it's one of the most important in this marvelous line of novels that I would give to every young woman and frankly old woman to read but Barbara is one I met Antonia Quirks the journalist and critic the other day and she said that she stockpiles first editions of the Brother Moore's famous Jack against nuclear war. She literally has a whole shelf of first editions. She's so passionate about that book. That's what this book does for people. Well, do you know what? You sold it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you about Maura Laverty. 
So I worked for the Virago Modern Classics years ago, and of course a lot of these books come from that series. And I was looking specifically for some Irish writers, and I came across Maura Laverty, who I immediately fell in love with. And the, tragically, I think her books are now out of print again, both in Ireland and in England. There were two books that were obviously based on her life, and although the books were published, I think, in the 40s, they're set in the 20s. And the first one is about a little girl in a farmhouse with her grandmother and it's really about life with her grandmother and all the amazing food that her grandmother cooked. I mean, the descriptions of the food make your mouth water. Of course, Maura Laverty rather famously wrote some cookbooks. But the one that's in this sequence of novels that I'm talking about now, the first one's called Never No More, and the second one is called No More Than Human. And that is when the girl becomes a teenager. And she did, as a lot of young Irish women did in those days, was go off to Spain to become a governess. And it's about her incredible discovery of this exotic Mediterranean life, of the food of Spain and finding love. And it was so explicit, particularly about the human body, that it was, of course, banned in Ireland for many years. But Maura Laverty has this wonderful, lilting, joyful, funny voice, and I completely fell in love with her heroine. And she's almost now a forgotten writer, really, isn't she? She is. She is, tragically. I think somebody should bring her back into print again. And if you were to maybe broaden this and say that if you were to point to any of her other books, what would they be? Well, actually, her cookery book, which is a total delight. And when you think about censorship and you look at Ireland now, and I suppose throughout the British Isles also, it's amazing how things have changed. We have changed so much. So much. I mean, Kate O'Brien was banned for years. You know, you read her marvellous books now and you think, how on earth could they have been banned? And then you have, as you say, the Bayless Prize winner, but also there's a very young Irish novelist who we've just bought to publish in paperback. He was just recently been published by Lilliput in Ireland called Rob Doyle. And it's an incredible novel. It's sort of Irish train spotting. And It has the most obscene language in it, but used so creatively and brilliantly. And it's about these boys taking drugs and committing acts of violence, but it's very redemptive and it's so brilliantly written. It's unimaginable that a book like this could have been published 40 years ago in Ireland. Things have changed so much. But I suppose, Alexandra, it's what makes a work of art. And sometimes works of art can be crude, they can be aggressive, they can be challenging, but they're still works of art. Now, Alexandra, I'm going to put you on the spot and we've given quite a selection of coming-of-age books for young women. If I were to ask you to pick five books for women, for the adult reader, and they can be from any country, any vintage, anywhere, what would they be? Oh, goodness. (laughs) I know it's a very nasty one. Well, I would put Barbara Trapedo in there. I would put Edith Wharton. I would say Sue Miller, American, and she's a very underrated writer. I would say Donna Tartt. It's so difficult because there's so many of them. I would say Rosamund Lehman. Oh, right. Um, she would be actually in amongst my, my coming-of-age stories, this invitation to the waltz and weather in the streets. Weather in the streets is one of the greatest novels ever about having an affair with a married man. There are books you give to people every single stage <laughs> of their life. And actually, I think, you know, for me, Esther Freud is right up there. I yeah. think she's a... Uh, 
empowering, wonderful writer. Every bit as good as Penelope Fitzgerald. And there's Angela Carter. A terrific writer. Yes, absolutely. And then people writing now, you know, there's some marvellous novels coming out of England written in English. So Mm. Jhumpa Lahiri, who is shortlisted for the Bailey's Prize, Mm. I think is a peerless writer. And then there's a Pakistani writer called Carmela Shamsi. And her new novel, A God in Every Stone, goes from Turkey before the First World War across continents and it deals with empires and feminism and love and loss. These big sweeping stories, I love those. And that was Alexandra Pringle from Bloomsbury Publishing in London. Okay, coming up next is Faulty Science Furthering Sexism. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you've missed any of our shows to date, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on Newstalk.com. All you need to do is go to Newstalk.com forward slash Talking Books and we have some very handy apps for iPhone, iPad and Android. OK, let's now move into a very provocative space and question whether men and women have similar abilities, desires and needs. Cordelia Fine is a research associate at Macquarie University, Australia, and an honorary research fellow in psychology at the University of Melbourne. Her breakthrough book, A Mind of Its Own, How Your Brain Distorts and Deceives, launched Cordelia as a science writer to watch, and quite the controversial one to boot. Cordelia's latest book, Delusions of Gender, debunks the myth that men and women's minds are significantly different. Delusions of Gender exposes bad science, which enforce the gender stereotypes we think we are trying to overcome. This book will have you laughing, screaming, tutting and generally losing the rag. So here is a quick run through of some of the big, juicy, porky pies rebuffed by Cordelia Fine. Women are wired to empathise. Women are bad at maths. Girls naturally love dolls. And boys are born lusting after trucks. This is a crux of delusions of gender. Cordelia proves that children are subject to gender stereotyping even before they are born. Delusions of gender exposes the surprising number of gaps, assumptions and research inconsistencies put out in some of the popular books on gender. You know, the bestsellers like The Female Brain. The essential difference. And of course, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And what's so unbelievably refreshing about this book is not just the author's gift for telling a good story, which I might add, she does brilliantly, but her controversial research conclusions. Cordelia believes the research itself does not provide conclusive evidence or indications on hardwired differences between the male and female brain. Put simply, the jury is out. Well, I gave Cordelia a call at her home in Melbourne and I asked her to talk me through the problem of neurosexism. Let's take a listen. Well, neurosexism is a term that I coined after looking at 
some popular science books about gender and it refers to the use of neuroscientific claims or neuroscientific language that reinforces old-fashioned gender stereotypes and roles in ways that are not scientifically justified. So this would be, in the case of popular neurosexism, giving a sort of veneer of uh, scientific credibility to those old stereotypes by drawing on neuroscientific claims or neuroscientific language. So you would say something like, well, you know, men are more analytic because they have a smaller amygdala or something like that. So you, you, you make some claim about a, a, a difference between male and female brains, uh, which may or may not be true. There's an, an incredible degree of inaccuracy in these popular books. And then you relate that claim about the brain to some sort of psychological difference between the sexes. You say this difference in the brain explains why men are like this and women are like that. Now there's some enormous inferential leaps there that are simply not scientifically valid. So that's that's a sort of popular neurosexism that you'll get in the kinds of books that you may pick up in a in a bookshop if anyone does anything as old fashioned as that these days. Uh, and then and then what I came to to see from researching delusions of gender is that there are actually more subtle forms of neurosexism in the scientific research itself. It's a very interesting book and it's a very provocative book. But one of the things your book does is you debunk every possible myth about gender. And I think pretty much what we get is that we've overstated what we can't conclude. I mean, the thesis of my book isn't that there are no inherent differences between the sexes or that there are no differences between the brains of males and females. My thesis is exactly as you say, that we're sort of drawing these science has shown that conclusions from data that actually when you look at them, they had their problems with the methodology, there are problems with the interpretation. So when I, when I first came to write the book and I wrote the proposal for my publisher, the target of the book was the popular writers. So it was very clear to me straight away that what the popular writers were saying was grossly exaggerated. It was an utter misrepresentation of the scientific studies that they were actually referring to, if they referred to any scientific studies at all. And I looked at the scientific literature to say, well, look, what does neuroscience say about the differences between the brains of men and women and the psychological implications? Or what does it say about the effects of testosterone on the brain? And the first thing to notice is the things that they say are obviously much more modest than the kinds of overblown interpretations that the popular writers are coming up with. But also, even those scientific conclusions themselves seem much more confident uh, than the data actually warranted. And in addition, there were sort of alternative explanations for the result due to, to perhaps, you know, problems with the methodology and so on that simply weren't taken account of by the researchers themselves. And so overall, what seemed like a very solid scientific literature, when you looked at it close up, was actually full of important, important weaknesses that in many cases just need to be addressed. I was actually quite surprised by that. And Luanne Brizadine's The Female Brain and the Male Brain, how she went about the research and the conclusions she then made, it's very, very patchy because the research approach seemed to have been pretty biased. I was generally very concerned about the popular books and especially when you consider that these books are not just being read by husbands or wives or boyfriends or girlfriends, but also by teachers for example, and I, I do find it very concerning that, that that degree of misinformation is being perpetuated. Can I ask you about gender priming? Because whether parents realise consciously that they're doing it or not, how gender stereotypes are enforced is at a very early age, consciously or unconsciously. Even with the best intentions, parents are priming their children to play a certain role. Well, I think one important thing about um, children and gender is is that it's it's not just the parents. Often what happens 
And this was an experience that I had when I was writing the book because I have two children myself and when people would say in the playground, oh, well, you know, you know, what work are you doing? And I'd explain that I was writing a book about gender. So one reaction was people just edge away from me. And the other was that they say, oh, you know, I used to think it was all socialization. And then I had children and I realized that it must be innate. And I think what's important to recognize about children is, first of all, as you say, we have these associations about gender, about what boys are like and what girls are like. And even if we are very egalitarian and well-intentioned, this can influence the way that we perceive of our children, very subtly can affect the way that we respond to children. So, you know, how gentle we are with them, whether we think they're angry or they're sad, whether we speak to them more or speak to them less, for example. So, you know, these sorts of effects have been identified. But in addition, you have to bear in mind that children are born into a world in which gender is really the most salient and obvious social division. So these two categories of people, there are males and there are females, and they dress differently and they do their hair differently, and they have uh, different names, and they wear different clothes, and they do different jobs, and they're referred to with different pronouns. And, you know, when children go to childcare, they're you know, referred to as boys and girls and so on and so forth. And during those first few years where, you know, babies and infants, of course, these sponges, they're just scooping up information all the time and they start to learn what kinds of things go with being male and what goes with being female and even by the time children reach preschool they know an awful lot about gender the sorts of things that go with being male and being female and once they reach the age of about two or three they come to realize you know which side of this incredibly important social division they belong and that puts them in a very interesting position because here's this for you know for the last two or so years, they've been learning that whether you're a male or female is this incredibly important uh, aspect of yourself. They know what's, what it is to be male, they know what it is to be female, and what kind of toys boys play with, and what kind of toys girls play with, and so on and so forth, and what kind of colours are for boys, and what kind of colours are for girls. And then they know which side of the division they fall, and parents are actually relatively powerless in the face of this, because it's like saying, look, gender is really important, but you feel free to make your own path. Now, that's not how psychology works. We have group identities. They're very powerful. We want to behave in line with our in-groups. Of course, once children reach this age, they become what's called self-socializing. So it's not necessarily parents forcing gender stereotypes on their children, though, of course, there are some parents who see it as part of their role to gender socialize their children in what they see as an appropriate way. But even for parents who have more egalitarian intentions, their child is in a society where gender is this very important thing and they know an awful lot about it. And in fact, when you look at the studies for, for toy preferences and color preferences, for example, it is around that age of about two or three when gender identity kicks in that you really start to see the divergence in children's interests, suggesting that it's this process of self-socialization rather than necessarily being gender being forced on them by parents or other caregivers. But there would be a research community out there or a group of psychologists or scientists out there who would say that different sex hormones create neurological differences in the brain. So, for example, oestrogens or testosterone, that it creates some differences and it's not just the social environment that's shaping our brain. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very influential idea. And um, as I said, when I first came to look at the book, or if we went straight to those studies to have a look at them just to see, well, what are, what are the size of the effects that we're talking about? Of, In particular, it's this idea that um, a surge of testosterone in the second trimester of pregnancy masculinizes the brains of, of boys and attracts them towards certain kinds of stimuli, which underlie the differences in in toy preferences between boys and girls. Now, it's absolutely the case that hormones do affect 
the brain. There's no doubt about that. But the question is whether they affect the brain in a way that draws males towards cars and weapons or you know all these other kinds of uh, boy toys and in fact it's very hard to to find a a characteristic that encompasses boy toys other than the fact that they're seen as masculine and that this absence of testosterone draws girls towards stimuli related to to girl toys so makeup or cleaning products or cooking or uh, dolls and so on and again it's it's very difficult to come up with a sort of organizing principle for, for, for girls toys other than them being feminine toys so Look, there were certainly uh, studies relating to that and lots of claims relating to that. It's just that when you happen to look at the, the evidence for it, there are a number of problems with the data. They're not, I'm not saying that the, this idea is wrong, but the data as they are aren't actually particularly compelling. And I know that you exhaustively went through the research of Susan Pinker and I know her famous book, Sexual Paradox, at the time was a bestseller and, and she presents very convincing arguments. But... You see all of this as a form of neurosexism of sorts or neuro-nonsense as you would describe it. Oh, look, I have to say of the popular books about gender, Susan Pinker's, I wouldn't put in the same category as, uh, as some of the other books. It was, it was much more thoughtful and accurate. I think Pinker's book, I suppose what you would describe as taking the conclusions of these kind of scientific studies at face value. She wasn't exaggerating them or misrepresenting them in any way. I, I think my issue is that when you actually look at the studies themselves, there are, are problematic aspects to it. So if you look at the scientific data, talking about differences between male and female brains, for example, so what you find is there is an issue in neuroimaging, which is that say you're interested in language processing and you, you give a language processing task to a bunch of people who are in a brain scanner. Now, you always ubiquitously collect information about people's sex. It's such an easy and obvious thing to ask for. And that means it's very easy and obvious and intuitive to test for sex differences. Now, sometimes you're just going to find differences between two groups by chance. And the problem is if researchers are routinely testing for sex differences and only reporting differences but not reporting similarities, then you can see that it's very easy for what are called false positive or spurious results to come up. So you start to get a literature that's full of findings of sex differences in the brain that chances are won't be replicated. And, and of course, that's selling the books and that's getting all the big news lines and so on because it makes for very juicy reading. People want the differences, but it's all a bit dull if we're all the same. Well, this is the part of the problem that, you know, finding a difference is, is more seen as more interesting as, as than finding a similarity, both in terms of scientific research where there's a, particularly in behavioural science, there's a strong bias towards positive findings compared to null results, and then, of course, in the, the media as well. But then the media also reflects our own interest in why do we still have so much inequality through the sexes? And so it becomes interesting if you think that there's a brain study that can explain that difference. And I think the second issue is that if you do find a, a sex difference in the brain, and let's just assume for sake of argument that it is a reliable difference that will be replicated, what does it mean functionally? We're very early on in our journey of understanding uh, how the neural circuits of the brain make up these very complex processes of the mind. And we're not really at the stage where we can jump from a neural characteristic to a psychological one in any reasonable way. So what tends to happen with these scientific studies is that people use gender stereotypes to kind of putty fill in that gap in our scientific knowledge. So they will identify a sex difference in the brain and then they'll draw on gender stereotypes to, to make an inter a sort of tentative interpretation of what that might mean. 
And of course, then that gets picked up by the popularizers who will present it in a more confident way and perhaps a more exaggerated way. And so now you've got a literature that's both scattered with false positive results and then it's full of these gender stereotype consistent interpretations. And then the third aspect of the neuroscientific literature is that it tends to just be these sort of single snapshot comparisons of male and female brains. Now, any neuroscientist, of course, knows that simply showing that something is in the brain doesn't mean that it's innate. I mean, we all are very excited about neuroplasticity and how the brain changes in response to experiences and behavior and so on. And yet what you can see is that if you only ever take a snapshot comparison of one particular sample of men and women and you don't do anything else, you actually can't collect any data that could challenge the idea that those sex differences may not be fixed, universal, timeless sort of representations of the male versus female essences. So then you have another implicit bias in the literature toward this idea that these differences between the male brains are fixed. In the end, what you end up with is a, is a literature that overall is very subtly biased towards presenting there being more sex differences in the brain, functionally important in a way that's consistent with stereotypes and more fixed. And that's, that's, that's a sort of form of academic or scientific neurosexism, this very subtle bias in the way that the research is, is done and interpreted. And, and that's, I guess, something that I wanted to try and highlight in my book. And it does go beyond the sort of typical interpretations of the literature would be represented, for example, in Susan Pinker's book. Now, Cordelia, you have great stuff on the workplace and gender stereotyping and the assumed roles that are played or not. And that if you cross the gender divides, the hot water that women or men can get into. I laugh to put it almost we're back at Victorian times, the way some of your research shows in the workplace. Certainly you have some stuff on female chief executives and the backlash they're up against. And they're called a queen almost if they're seen to be anyway demanding. Yeah, look, I think I think it's important to keep sight of how much progress there actually there actually has been. The very idea of a female CEO hundred years ago would have been almost too horrifying to contemplate. So there has been progress. But yeah, women have this very difficult being called the tightrope of impression management to navigate. So and at the core of the problem is that our stereotypes of leaders are inconsistent with our stereotypes and in particular our prescriptions about what women should be like. So women should be nice, they should be communal and they should be oriented towards other people and that's not necessarily how we expect our leaders to behave. So that does create a difficulty for in particular women leaders whose leadership style that they prefer involve masculine high status masculine traits because there's a prescription against it through gender norms we sort of bristle against it so study after study as you say shows that when women behave in this way they're they're penalized in a way that that men simply don't tend to be one of our students at the center for ethical leadership at Ormond college at the university of melbourne has recently put together a, a large review of this backlash effect and the results are very depressing because it's it's a very difficult situation for women to win in. And when it comes down to negotiating pay rises or promotions or what women are either prepared to do or how they are perceived when they do ask or push the boat out in any way, it makes me think that in some ways are we as men and women putting ourselves, not just society, but are we putting ourselves in gender straitjackets by persistently assuming these types of roles? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, these, these sorts of 
these things are not something you can change on your own. I mean, you can't individually decide to change gender norms or defy them. I mean, it's sort of, by definition, norms are things that are, are widely held and, and um, sh sort of shared prescriptions or proscriptions. I think, you know, the first step is, is to really be aware that these inequalities or the lack of a level playing field does actually exist. And this was one of the things that I noticed about the popular literature that I was reading was that it, it was indicating that, look, we've got, we have this level playing field now, therefore the fact that we don't have equality suggests, well, it's nothing on the outside now, you know, yes, maybe 50 or 100 years ago, but not anymore, so it must be something on the inside. And one of the things that I wanted to do in my book, in addition to pointing to the kind of overconfidence and the conclusions from the sort of neuroscientific or neurobiological literature, was also to point to, to the external, what's going on externally, and, and say, look, there isn't a level playing field because we do still have these stereotypes and even though we may not ex explicitly endorse them they do affect the way that we behave the way that we respond to other and you know women tend to be as susceptible to these effects when judging other people as men are so you know simply being a woman doesn't mean that you won't be inadvertently uh, discriminatory in the way that you perceive other people and, and I do think it's important to be aware of this literature so for example at, at the moment I'm, I'm looking at claims about risk-taking in particular um, areas I've seen as evidence of women being more risk-averse is that they're less likely to negotiate for increased pay. And you think, well, that may be so, but is it because they're intrinsically risk-averse or is it because they're aware that there are you know, higher risks and costs and fewer benefits associated with the same action than if it was taken by a man? So I, I do think just being aware that the, the playing field, unfortunately, still isn't level is, is in itself um, an important thing to recognise. Now, Cordelia, I was very interested to read about Jan Morris. There was a very revealing quote in your book where she says, the more I was treated as a woman, the more I became. That really says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a very striking and compelling quote. And, and in particular, she refers to how the sort of expectations of others almost become reality for her. So this expectation that she wouldn't be able to carry a heavy suitcase or something like that actually sort of seemed to be internalised and become part of her. And there is really interesting social psychological research showing just how permeable our minds are to the, the wider social context. So we're intensely social animals and it seems that we're often driven to, to have coherence with the beliefs of others around us. So there's work by Stacey Sinclair, for example, showing that when people are thinking about or in the presence of someone who they think holds particular kinds of stereotypical beliefs, your own view of yourself shifts to be more consistent with that other person's belief. And you can see how this is, you know, very much would help with communication and, and getting on with people. But it does make you a little bit vulnerable to other people's beliefs. These are not issues that can be solved at an individual level because some extent we're all somewhat suggestible to the to the expectations of others. I have to say one thing that's worth saying is that so much of this research has been done on North American students and you know it's not clear how representative they are of <laughs> all of humanity um, and it certainly may be that some of the effects that are seen in students who are at a particular time in their life where they're you know still I suppose discovering who they are and, and the paths that they will take may be more susceptible they may have sort of a less secure uh, self-concept that may be more susceptible to these influences. But it's also important to acknowledge that, you know, these, these influences are having an effect at this time when young adults are making these very important decisions that may well set the path uh, and a very gendered path that they take for the, for the remainder of their careers and their lives. And last question, Cordelia. Do you think in a hundred years' time we'll still be focusing in on difference? 
because if you look at in any um, social setting, in any cultural setting, the more you look at difference, the more complicated life becomes. And maybe we should look at things a little bit differently and a little bit more creatively and look at the commonalities within our experiences of the genders. And maybe if we just took a different tact in it all, it would be a lot easier for both sexes. Well, I think one of the things that people who work in the area of gender have wanted to move towards, and this is something that with colleagues have been trying to see incorporated more in the neurobiological research, is to understand what's described as the contingency of gender. So it's not this sort of static, men are like this, women are like that, but these differences are very fluid and they change according to time and place and context and task and individual. So it's very complex, it's very interactive and it's, and it's very fluid and that needs to be incorporated into the way that research is done. But I really like your question because I think when you look back a hundred years and, you know, we had opinion pieces in the New York Times pointing to characteristics of the spinal cord that differ between men and women and, that, you know, saying, look, I think this tells us something about whether or not women should have the vote and now it just seems unspeakably ridiculous and it's an interesting question to ask well what will our debates our contemporary debates look like in a hundred years so the kind of the inequality that we're trying to explain just is diminishing all the time so it's an interesting question what will what will we be left with to try to even be explaining in a hundred years Cognitive psychologist and author Cordelia Fine. Delusions of Gender is published by Icon Books and retails at about €10. I have to say, Cordelia is a terrific writer, compelling, sharp, witty, and hugely authoritative. €10, very well spent. Okay, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to leave the last word this morning to the probing, courageous and hugely hopeful Cordelia Fine, who writes in her conclusions to Delusions of Gender. Our mind, society and neurosexism create difference. Together they were gender, but the wiring is soft, not hard. It is flexible, malleable and changeable. And if we only believe this, it will continue to unravel. for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.